The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Have you now turn in your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue on in our Ephesians series. You know, people can use very personal terms to describe financial matters. We speak of a dead economy, or the economy is alive again. Well, vice versa, we can use financial terms to describe one's spiritual, spiritual condition. As we search scripture, we find that the Bible's verdict on human nature is spiritually bankrupt. The human condition must file chapter 11 before the judgment seat of God. Now, this teaching is offensive to many, but it is the one true path. And the only way that people can find real hope and discover the riches of God available for us in Jesus Christ. No passage in the Bible makes this more clear than Ephesians chapter 2. And please follow as I read verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, these are weighty words. This is a, an astounding verdict, and yet we would be more astounded by the measure of your rich grace for us in Christ Jesus. Open the minds, open our hearts, that we might behold wonderful riches from this portion of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Since 2008, the U.S. housing market has taken a beating. 
with record numbers of foreclosures and many American households facing bankruptcy. My sister and her family live on the outskirts of Las Vegas, Nevada, one of those states that have been hardest hit by the recession of recent years. In fact, I checked it recently, and Nevada is the fifth worst state in the country, with one in every 400 homes in foreclosure. About two years ago, my sister was informing myself, and I think my parents, I can't remember if we were on the phone or a three-way or something, and were telling us about some good friends of hers who were facing foreclosure on their home. And these friends, like many others, had bought into the notion that you could buy and buy up and upgrade your home and just trust that the market would continue to grow and increase at 10, 20% a year or, or every few years in, ho- in home value. And this was uh, back in about 2006 when they bought a half million dollar home. Well, within a few short year- years, their house had lost about almost half its value. And in the recession, the, the husband and main breadwinner was facing a layoff unable to pay their monthly mortgage, and underwater, owing far more on their home than what they had originally paid for it. Well, this distressed husband and wife sought counsel from a lawyer as they anticipated facing the prospect of bankruptcy. Now, this lawyer gave them counsel, told them to stop paying their mortgage, to ignore their debts, And while you're at it, go ahead and have a family vacation. And that was music to their ears. Because they were stressed out. They needed a break. And so this husband and wife paid for a trip on credit to take their family to a Caribbean destination to the tune of $10,000 or more. All on credit fully expecting that this would be covered eventually by taxpayers as they would eventually file for bankruptcy. Now you, like I and my parents, are appalled. You perhaps seethe with indignation at the audacity of people so grossly abusing our financial system to gratify their own desires, to take no personal responsibility, to merely accumulate debt at the expense of others. It's inexcusable. And yet, do you know that Ephesians 2 says that about every single one of us? That you and I are abusers of God's riches, of all of his grace and provision that's available for us, you and I, before we would pass judgment upon these desperate sinners out west, need to consider what the Bible has to say about us and to what extent we can respond faithfully to the riches of God, God's grace available to us in Christ, spiritual bankruptcy 
moral decadence, total depravity, is the natural condition of every man, woman, and child on this planet. Paul declares a stunning verdict. This is who we are. The natural-born children of wrath. But, because of God's great and surpassing love, we have the riches of God's free grace available to, yes, bail us out and give us real standing before him through the precious work of Jesus Christ. I want us to consider from our text tonight how grave was our condition. That our salvation is by grace and that our destination is future glory with Christ. Now after praying a long and heavenly prayer to conclude chapter 1 of his letter, Paul comes to chapter 2 with this this breathtaking pronouncement of death on fallen, sinful humanity. And the the gravity is overwhelming when we consider the, the inheritance of our debt, of our sinful condition, and the, the personal way in which you and I engage in sin and rebellion against the living God. It, we, we are like the DOA tag that is attached to the toe of the cadaver that arrives at the hospital morgue. We are dead on arrival. Dating back to the Garden of Eden when our first parents who were warned not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ate anyway. In rebellion against the word of their creator. And yet, though proclaimed that they would be dead, they were still living, right? And yet we know from the interpretation of Scripture that that very day they died. They died to fellowship with God. They died to the free access to the living God in fellowship and communion. They came under curse. And with them, all the human race, every single one of us receive that inheritance of debt, that spiritual bankruptcy. It is ours by, by nature because our first representatives bestowed it upon us. And we are under that curse and suffer not only mortality, but eternal death in the judgment to come. It says in verse 3 that we are children of wrath, that we are not born innocent, we are not born with sweetness and innocence and angel-like. No, we are born rebels and sinners, vipers and diapers, as I like to call it sometimes. We are enemies alienated and under God's condemnation. Sin is inherited to the fault of our own first parents. And some question, is that fair? Is it, is it fair that we, that we should bear that inheritance? Well, we can argue back and forth over it and try to convince you from Scripture and the references that Paul and Jesus make about being under our head, our representative Adam. And yet, even if I lose that argument with with you, I don't think it would take much to convince you that even very, very young children, very young children, know how to sin. They develop the expertise very quickly. 
And you, you see this manifestation of sin in young children, and it establishes this truth. It helps affirm the truth that we believe Scripture teaches, that we sin because we are sinners, that we are fundamentally fallen, broken, and rebelling against God by nature, and all of our attitudes, desires, words, and actions simply flow out of that broken, fallen condition that the Bible concentrates in the hollowness and emptiness and brokenness of the human heart. And so Paul brings attention to this fact that we follow the passions and desires of our heart bent on self and away from pleasing God. But notice how Paul further personalizes our sin nature, that that we are dead in sins in which we once walked. It, It characterized our whole life. And notice how we both followed the course of the world and pledged loyalty to the devil, who is here called the prince of the power of the air. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in allegiance, in conspiracy against God the Creator. And we are bound and controlled by the sin nature. Serving the flesh, following the world, and loyal to the very enemy of God. These verses, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, oftentimes are referred to as the chief proof text for an important doctrine that has been passed down to us since Luther and Calvin and the other Protestant reformers, something we call total depravity. It's, it's a big phrase. It's this Reformation teaching that our human nature is completely corrupted and tainted by sin. Our minds, our thoughts, our bodies, the desires of our hearts are all polluted by sin. It's like that tsunami that struck Japan. And when the ocean waves hit that shore and toppled over every sewage system and brought down the nuclear reactors, all the toxic waste affected everything. Everything across the landscape was tainted and polluted by that disaster. In the same way, our whole human condition is polluted and tainted by the disaster and destruction of sin. Other texts affirm the same thing. Paul writes in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. And he's quoting largely the Old Testament. Hebrews 3 warns us against an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God and against becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, you don't do sin. Sin does you. Sin is a deceiver, making you think you're in control, and yet controls you and I. In Jeremiah 17, 9, one of the loudest and clearest pronouncements of the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? when I was receiving evangelism training in college, we were taught to use this illustration with an unbeliever, that that they're like a swimmer caught offshore at at the coast, 
caught in the undertow, struggling and flailing around and in danger of drowning. And salvation through Christ is, is like a lifeguard coming to the rescue and, and, and throwing you a life preserver. And faith is like grabbing hold of that life preserver and being towed in to safety. Sounded pretty good. I mean, just, just believe and be saved. Well, another Christian came along at that time of my life and challenged me. And he proposed that, that this analogy actually did not work all that well. And I said, why? He said, well, the, the Bible doesn't really teach that. Really? And his pronouncement was this. The, the analogy doesn't work because dead men don't swim. I was baffled uh, until he explained to me that the Bible does not describe us as struggling and swimming and flailing around in the water, but rather our situation is even more dire. We've already drowned. That we are dead at the bottom of the ocean floor. A flotation device won't help us. We don't have any power in and of ourselves to reach out, to swim, to, to, to make that extra reach from God's initiative. We need the true life preserver to dive into the deeps, to bring us to the surface and bring new life into us. That, that's actually a more accurate biblical description of our true human condition. Now, every once in a while, I'll get into a, a respectful discussion with somebody about Reformed teaching and Calvinism. And you know, some of you may know that, that we have this thing called the five points of Calvinism. Okay? And uh, yeah, I, I can't t- teach you the five points of Calvinism here right now. Uh, but just a quick summary is there's, there's a thing called total depravity about our sinful, broken condition. There's a teaching called unconditional election, that that God chooses and elects believers by by free grace alone. And people usually don't have a problem with those teachings, but then I'll come across somebody who has a problem with, like, the third point, which we call limited atonement, which may be better described particular atonement. It it means that, that when Jesus came to die, he didn't just die for everybody in a generic kind of way. Jesus came to die for a specific people, a particular people, who he foreknew before the foundations of the world because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. We believe that's what Jesus and Paul clearly taught. And, and, and then I'll, I'll come across somebody who, who resists the teaching of irresistible grace. That this idea that, that you and I need the Holy Spirit to give us life. As Jesus clearly teaches Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that that we need to be born again before we can even respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. And and so when I'm having this dialogue with people who are wrestling with these teachings, it occurs to me that their real problem is with total depravity. That, That a person who is struggling to embrace what we might call Calvinism or reformed teaching or the doctrines of grace, their real struggle is to embrace this dire indictment of Scripture on human nature. 
that when Scripture says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, it really means we are dead in trespasses and sins, and we can do nothing to rescue ourselves. That our salvation comes completely from the initiative, power, and gracious intentions of God. And that once we are given life, we respond with faith and repentance. Because, friends, think about it. If you look back upon your, your testimony, your life with God in Christ, I believe that if you have to be honest with yourself, you have to admit, you know, I, I never would have come on my own volition. I never would have come, I never would have believed if it were not the powerful, overworking work of God in my life by his spirit and by his grace to bring me and draw me and enable me to respond in faith and repentance. Now, why make such a big deal about this? Because I believe it impacts the way we view our salvation and the way we view the Christian life. If you do not understand the depths of your helpless condition, and the bondage and slavery of your sin, you also won't understand the, full, the greatness and the glory and the graciousness of God. Because if you try to elevate your condition to be not as bad as the Bible says it is, you're also going to minimize and bring down the greatness and goodness of how good and holy God is. So it's, it's to the extent that we understand the depths of our sin and the magnitude of God's holiness is then that we can see the greatness of the cross that bridges that mighty gulf that reconciles us to God the Father by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul has to lay this foundation in the first few chapters of Ephesians. So before he even goes on to give us lots of practical exhortation later on in this important letter. But in verse 4, we have this glorious conjunction. But God, who is rich in mercy, while you and I were bankrupt, without anything good, about us, with nothing of worth or value to God. God who was not indebted to us, who was not attracted to you and I in any way, shape, or form, when God had every right to crush us, to cast us out as the rebels and children of wrath that we are, God chose mercy. It comes from this Old Testament word, hesed. Steadfast love. The mercy, patience, and long-suffering that God showed to the idolatrous people that were the Israelite nation. It's not our loveliness, but rather, rather the magnitude of God's great love with which he loved us that we are saved. God's love is not romantic. He was not seeking a beautiful bride that would make him look good and meet his needs. Rather, he sought a bride to make her beautiful. Because his love is self-giving, self-sacrificing, self 
emptying, other-serving, in which all of the benefits are one-sided. And you and I are the glad receivers of all those good benefits. You see, God's nature is to give out of his fullness, out of the abundance of his life and holiness. And, and it's that same impulse, that, that spark of the divine that, that guides certain human behaviors, like the people who advocate for the unborn and stand against the evil and injustice of abortion, cannot bearing to see another child die. It's what motivates doctors to want to use their skills and talents to save human life. It's what moves missionaries to give up their conveniences to tell others about Christ, not willing that any should perish, but that many would come and find everlasting life. You perhaps heard the news story this past summer of a city beach lifeguard who from his post saw a man struggling far out uh, off the coast, and he went to the rescue. And after the man was rescued, this lifeguard was promptly fired by the lifeguard agency that was on contract with the city beach authority. And uh, as it turns out, this lifeguard, he left his zone. The, the man who was drowning what was outside his zone of responsibility. In fact, he was outside this agency's zone of responsibility, and so he, this lifeguard broke the rules in order to save a life. Now, after the event and the public outcry, I understand that this lifeguard was offered his job back as the hero that he was. This lifeguard risked his job to save a life. He left a zone of safety to enter into danger. Jesus left his father's throne, the comfort, safety, and riches of the throne room of the living God, to enter into hostility and poverty to rescue us and to enrich us. He went outside the bounds. Gods aren't supposed to do that. The Greeks and the Romans and every other religion doesn't tell you about any God who's willing to give up his divinity and come and take up our humanity and willing to suffer and take our burdens. Gods aren't supposed to do that, but, but our God did. He, he, he gave up his job. He came to rescue us and deliver us from our wretched condition, to fulfill the law, to be punished in our place as a, as a sacrifice of substitution. As Paul summarizes... It's by grace by which you are saved. And he goes on in verse 9, which we'll cover next time, not by works so that no one can boast. God's mercy is his pardoning mercy that declares us not guilty that we are spared eternal wrath and punishment. It's not getting what we deserve. God's grace is the privilege we have as the adopted sons and daughters who are now elevated, who have status, who have a place at the table. Verse 6 says that we are raised up and seated in the heavenly places. You and I are given 
seats of honor at the rich banqueting table of God. Not only are we pardoned and spared the judgment and wrath to come, we are also our privilege to dwell with God, to eat at his table, to fellowship with him and worship him forever and ever. Paul does give a brief indication as to what is God's motive in our salvation. He says, in the coming ages, he might, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. My wife and I have, as I've told you, have, have a new home, and we've enjoyed showing off our new home to friends and, and family. And whenever I finish a project at home, I like to show it off and be proud of myself and hear people ooh and awe. My, my children delight to show me their artwork, the things that they have created and drafted and colored. We have a student from China living with us, and she delights to show us her artwork from China, her, her kung fu skill, and her musical gifts. God desires to put on display his greatest good, his grace, and his kindness. Those things which the world is very poor in. Those things for which the world has a huge deficit. God has an abundance. His grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This past week I donated blood through the Red Cross, something I do periodically and have done for years since I was a college student. Uh, about four years ago, the Red Cross, at least as far as I know, began to introduce the, the double red cell donation where they bring this machine and, and you get hooked up to it and you get to watch the blood, the whole blood flow out of you. If you're not queasy, uh, you can watch the blood flow out of you and, and, the, and it, it, it separates the, the components of your blood. So the, the red cells go into one bag and the plasma and the platelets go in another bag and it takes it out and then it it pumps back into your body the, the plasma and the platelets and some saline and it takes, you know, three or four times to, to all be done. And uh, what, what's, what's helpful about double reds is it's available right away. The blood's already been, unlike whole blood that has to be processed and takes several days, double reds are ready to go the next day after they've been tested. And it's also nice because I don't have to go back as, as often. I get 112 days off before I have to report again. The Red Cross also likes my blood because my, my blood type is O negative. It's just pure blood. It was the way blood was created to be. It's, there's no antibodies. There's no RH factor. It's just, whole, it's just pure blood that, that anybody can receive. Any of you can receive my blood. And it will have life-saving benefits. But as I reflect upon the process of giving blood, it's amazing. So I just gave blood on, on like Thursday. I'm amazed at the regenerative powers of the body. I just gave blood. I get up. I have some Keebler Elves snack and some apple juice, and I'm on my way, and I hardly feel the effects of it. It costs me an hour of my time. A little bit of iodine on the arm, a prick, a little hair off my arm, and uh, I can't lift anything heavy for a few hours. It's a mild inconvenience. I enjoy the reward of knowing that somebody who is poor in health 
has been made well by the riches of my health. You know, giving blood is a small act of kindness. A relatively insignificant sacrifice, and but a modest response to the great kindness, to the ultimate sacrifice of him who gave more than a blood donation, who shed his own blood for you and I, and not just for sick people who were about to die and needing life, but for people who were cursing him and in rebellion against him. We who were dead have been made alive in Christ. We who were empty have been made full. Those who were sick are made well. Those of us who had nothing have been given everything. We in our spiritual bankruptcy, in our indebtedness, have been made rich and given the privilege of sitting at the table of the king in great glory forever and ever. The story is told of a Russian czar who had a trusted general that was dying. And the czar promised his general that he would provide for and take care of his only son. And so the czar gave the general's son a place to live and the best of educations until the boy grew into a young man and was commissioned into the army. But the young man had a problem. He was addicted to gambling. And over time, he accrued a great debt. And he began to embezzle funds from his regiment to pay off what he owed. Until the night came in which he realized he could no longer hide his embezzlement from the accountants. In drinking heavily, he took a revolver with the intention of taking his life. And taking a few more drinks to strengthen his resolve, he passed out. Well, that same night, the czar walked amongst his troops in disguise, something he did on a regular basis, just to check on the morale of his army. And Azar came upon the tent of his foster son and seeing the revolver and seeing what was scribbled on a page of notes, realized the situation and knew what his son had intended to do. Well, hours later, when the young man awoke, he was surprised to see the revolver was gone. And before him on his desk was a letter from the czar pledging to pay off all the debts from his own personal funds and stamping it with his personal seal. The young man's life was transformed. Like my sister's friends, And like this general's sons, you and I are all debtors. Debtors to grace alone. And what is lacking in our accounts has been made good by our true elder brother, who gladly shared with us his inheritance to those of us who were most undeserving. Friends, glorify God. 
by acknowledging the depths of your broken and desperate condition, but also receiving and glorying in the greatness of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you are saved. Praise him. With a life that testifies to the truth that though he was rich, he became poor so that you and I in our poverty might be made rich and share with him in the great wealth and banqueting table that is heaven for all eternity. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you not only paid our debt, you not only restored accounts, you not only made good with all that we had done wrong, you welcome us into your presence. And you have established a place for us to sit and feast with you. And we long for that day. May you strengthen us, may you fill us, and may we live lives that bring glory to your great name. Through Jesus we pray. And.